0: Gracias. <música>
1: Welcome, everybody, to Finding Hermes. I hope you're ready to lay your cards on the table, walk through those doors, and be transparent to the transcendent, because beyond all this BS that surrounds us and that surrounds all of us and who we think we are, there's something truly amazing. We are uh, very happy to have Blaze Kennedy on this episode. Blaze, thanks for uh, coming on the show.
2: Uh, Thank you, and I I love your laying the cards down intro it's a great way to start
1: it is i mean it is one of those when you decide you're gonna go in recovery there's that moment where you're like i just can't do it anymore i'm gonna put everything that i am down in front of everybody the confessions the honesty all that stuff and i'm gonna finally take a look inward instead of uh blaming it on people or uh, all the other tricks that we played that the dark side of Hermes played with our minds. So makes sense. And your story, of course, one of the reasons or one of the insights I had when I was uh first time I was in rehab, I used to think I was sort of a James Dean rebel. Oh, I'm just going to do drugs and live a fast life. Ha ha, I'm so cool. Once I went into rehab, into rooms and got connected with other addicts I was like oh my god my story is so unoriginal (laughs) not just unoriginal it's boring it's just another statistic another destroyed life Uh, there's much more on the other side of recovery to do something unique and that happened I'm sure that happened to you if you'd like to share and uh, I'm sure you were like me before you tried everything and nothing worked
2: Absolutely, but <clears throat> to advance your laying your cards down, I would say before I went to treatment, it never really occurred to me as a life strategy to just lay my cards on the table. That just had not crossed my mind that the the like a kind of a life of uh honesty and openness was a success strategy. My life up until the point I went into treatment was <clears throat> essentially trying to manage um to avoid putting my cards down on the table, to keep trying to pick up ones that were better to sort of make my hand appear nicer than it was, but never really putting any down. Um,
1: Playing with the gods, a game you're going to lose.
2: Absolutely. I didn't know the rules of the game. Nobody told me (laughs) how the game of life was actually played. I had, I had uh, exoteric examples of how to live life. And I happened to be particularly bad at that (laughs) method. So it's true. When I went to treatment, I, I was, uh, I I remember going to treatment and distinctly realizing that I was a child. There, was, I was 24. I was fairly young at the time, but I just realized that I'd been kind of playing an adult, but I really, at the heart, was a child. And recovery is a wonderful place, especially treatment centers, where they can hold you in that. Like the whole point is that you don't know what you're doing. And uh, one of the one of the people used to joke. Um, that we should all be wearing white hospital gowns to sort of reinforce our current state. So I I took to this really well as the essential premise of treatment and recovery is lay your cards down. Try being honest. Try being genuine in your action. And I just, I I thought this was amazing. It was also much more interesting than the life I'd lived before. You know, just it's amazing. It's a, this James Dean quality. How we can make meaning out of really small and miserable little lives <laughs> in before recovery and and, re- and recovery or life after addiction promised sort of an expansion of my territory of my ability to explore and learn. Uh, and It was in- intoxicating, if I can, if I can use the phrase.
1: Oh, I definitely agree. And, uh, yeah, that's the key is the honesty and honesty with ourselves, because God knows I could always be brutally honesty with others. And, uh, that was, a—I uh, I was just making things worse. I was covering for my own lies. Uh, there's a saying, and I don't know who said it. I heard it years ago and it works very well for me. It says, uh, Never tell anybody something unless it achieves these qualities. It's uh, compl- It's loving, it's necessary, and it's 100% honest. And now I realize that pretty much 99% of the time, I just keep my mouth shut. You know, what am I going to change?
2: They had this, th- not to... Um... Contrast with that, but they had this uh, activity we had to do in treatment that I remember where they would force us to give each other feedback. And um, as you know, recovery can be a kind of like a, a brutal reality experience. There's not necess- There's those qualifiers are sort of thrown out the window because of the necessity, like we're all at the edge of peril. So they would have us sit with each other, and we had to, with these people that we barely knew. Then we had to tell them what their blocks to the recovery. I think that you're, I, I see you as being arrogant and this is a block. And I got used to a kind of a culture where people just kind of went for it all around. And uh, as I've matured, I've more and more taken on those qualifiers that you describe because the necessity or the intensity has decreased, you know. The people around me aren't aren't dying perpetually or aren't on the edge of life. So I don't have to save people anymore.
1: No, that's never been our jobs as uh our jobs is as, as they say is to dance our dance, to awaken ourselves, to become whole. I uh like to quote recently what Carl Jung said, we didn't come to this earth to be good, we came to be whole. We didn't come to save the world as in my addiction, I always thought also besides James Dean, or maybe in the archetypal image of James Dean, I was gonna save people. But yeah. never happened. Never
2: happened. <laughs> right. And and it's this shift towards somewhere where we can put our focus and our energy that's productive and actually works It follows the rules of the game. I spent most of my, my archetype was I wanted to be great. I, I don't even, it didn't matter what I did, but I just wanted to do something great. It could have been write the next great American novel. It could have been be an athlete. I tried countless things, but it never stuck. And I thought there was something wrong with me. And treatment offered the possibility that the great thing was actually to be me. Well when, said. And the, and the power of that is there's no, like that's not something that needs to be received like an artist or a, a musician or an athlete. There's no other in that. That's, f- there's no barrier to personal excellence. If the standard is your own experience. And that was, that was tremendously empowering for me. It gave me an, a place for my energy, um, or I wasn't dependent upon some kind of outcome in which really the truth, however it was, was my, that was my highest potential. That was the best that I could do. And um, essentially I just really fell deeply in love with that.
1: Oh, well said. I love it because yeah i recall reading the the big book and uh bill w was always the biggest overachiever very competitive he had to be the best stockbroker and athlete and soldier and you could tell it was every time he thought he was the greatest he was just sinking deeper into sadness into alcoholism because he like you said he wasn't facing who he really was what he was Mm -hmm. meant to do in this world and i remember my sponsor always saying uh Maybe you're just supposed to be a regular Joe. What's wrong with that? Just be a regular Joe. Life is good. As they say in AA, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? I'm like, um, uh, and, uh, when you went to rehab, uh, what were some, how was that? Was, were you able to overcome your addiction? Did you relapse or what was the process of leaving rehab and then fully, uh, embracing recovery if you would, or a spiritual life?
2: Yeah. I, I didn't I didn't have any trouble. I I I think the whole the whole there was a series of events, it was progressive, but it became clear that just spirituality was what I was gonna do with my life. And I didn't think about using because I realized I felt deeply that drugs were kind of an indirect and unconscious way to get what I really wanted. You know, I didn't grow up in a in a culture that that considered that there's a possibility to open essentially your sensitivity to perceive more and more expanded and beautiful experiences of consciousness. That wasn't a possibility. Drugs kind of do that in their own way. That's kind of what drugs are. And so when I discovered that there was really a way to get exactly what I wanted, drugs didn't seem particularly interesting. And I've been really fortunate that, um, yeah, I haven't relapsed or had any urges to, to, to be a drug addict ever since. Um,
1: good, yeah. that's good to hear. Uh, obviously, everybody has a different path. There is no straight path, and uh, as they say, when people are ready, they're ready, and it has nothing to do with with us. That's the that's the mystery. But you. Uh, certainly advocate in your website and your practice meditation the process meditation how did meditation uh, come into your recovery and your general life uh, was it immediate or how was it
2: well first when i was a kid my dad i think my dad had my dad died when i was a child but he had i know he had drug addictions i can't ask him specifically about it he didn't tell me when i was very young but i know he did and he started doing uh, tm or transcendental meditation so as a child i used to watch my dad go into the bedroom and just sit there and meditate and i would even though he did tm i asked him one time what how do you meditate and he told me there's there's no technique to meditate and that just sort of stuck with me and there's this thing that you can do which there's no technique to and um it's powerful or meaningful or deep and Somehow that was in the sort of the back of my um, experience. So when I went to treatment, I just decided I was going to learn to meditate and I was going to do it without technique or uh, without any. I wasn't going to sit there and follow my breath or something, but that's not. it's not really clear what to do. If you're not doing anything. So I I remember I read a bunch of books by J. Krishnamurti. And this is what J. Krishnamurti advocates for. I didn't under, I didn't come away with an understanding of what to do. I just came away with this reinforcement. No path, no technique, no, don't add anything to your experience. Just look directly. And that sounds really good. And it's it seems really obvious. But of course the question is, well, like, what do I do? What, what is left for me to do? And it so I just sat there I would just actually just sit there and I didn't really know what I, I didn't really have a focus point or any intention really other than to just sit and I'd live my life without any discipline for so long. I was thrilled to be able to set a timer and just sit there. That was it's just a wonderful experience in and of itself. Um, and after I did that for a few years, I was introduced to a book about meditation um, by my who would become my wife?" She kind of came with she came with a whole bunch of uh, spiritual stimulus for me, a big stimulus package, and involved uh, meeting or becoming introduced to Adi Ashanti. And his path is uh, self inquiry or it's a part of his path as a meditation technique. And I would say that self-inquiry lies halfway between doing nothing and doing something. It's the, it's the Tao. It's the, it's the most effective way to teach somebody how to do nothing. Um, and today I teach that in my own way. I have, I think I've moved, if this is, I've moved closer to doing something. I've moved in, in what I teach, I've moved the scales more towards doing something. Most people aren't interested in, uh, they want to they do something they, that that makes sense to them. So the, the thing is to give people tasks that point to effortless, pre-existing qualities of life. So self-inquiry is kind of an open-ended question. It's what am I? It's what am I? And the reflection always comes back to the experience of being, which pre-exists effort. Has all these beautiful qualities like non reactivity, non attachment, peace inherently. And when I, so I read a book by Adi Ashanti, and it just kind of became obvious that there was, there actually was a thing other than just doing nothing, there were things that I could become aware of um, beyond that. So I, that was really where my, my spiritual life really kind of took off is when I realized that there was a a kind of a witnessing awareness, a transcendent quality that's constantly here, that's constantly present. And I spent a lot of time meditating after that because I wanted more of that. And as my path progressed, I kind of took my, after many years, I'd say I took my foot off the gas sort of because those qualities become fundamental to experience. The idea of meditation is that i if I become connected enough to my awareness consciousness that it starts to permeate my experience it's just the way it is um, so i don't I don't meditate so much in a formal way anymore but the the early sort of love for meditation was really important for me,
1: oh yeah, I love what you've been saying in a- I should tell the audience, as I have said before, uh, meditation is not just sitting there counting your breath and expecting to have no mind. Uh, There are so many ways of meditation that you can find. I, I think hypnotism is meditation. Golfing could be meditation. It's who you are. And would you agree? Also, the advice: uh, don't have expectations. Because I used to think, well, I've got to sit there, and again, I've got to be in a state of no mind in one mystical union with the universe. And uh, it, I just, I got in my own way, as they say in AA. And I, Absolutely. I think I remember uh, talking to a guest, Richard Smoley, and I asked him, "Well, why do you meditate?" He's like, "I meditate to meditate."
2: I think that some amount of getting in your own way is almost inevitable you're going to witness yourself strive and want things and go well what happens next and and do all those things that what i advocate for is to discover parts of yourself that aren't doing that i would say there are underlying qualities of existing of being alive that aren't striving, that aren't trying to improve, that aren't looking to change anything. And rather than sort of managing or fighting with the parts of ourselves that are, we just kind of leave those be. And not in a way where we're just telling ourselves we leave those be, but by focusing on qualities of consciousness that actually are totally fine with the way life is. And the most fundamental to me is the experience of being aware. So, as I shift and this is again the, the first thing that I teach the the thing that you can do that's as as uh, um, effortful as far as I'll go, is you can shift your attention from what you're aware of to the experience of being aware. And so essentially, we're using our effort or our will to discover something again that doesn't have any effort or will or preference. So our own desire can be actually used to illuminate our own awareness. We can choose to have a relationship with it. Once we perceive it, that's, in my experience, that's it. It's doing the not doing. It is the empty mind. And so we can learn to hold our attention, that we can learn to actually rest back into the experience of being aware. Um, Yeah. Yeah,
1: Well, that would be the... uh... The $64,000 question, as I say, dating myself again. Yeah. But, uh, Blaze, what is awareness? It's one of those words like consciousness yeah, or paganism. It's sort of a, what they call a wastebasket term. You you say it, and then you throw it out, and you expect yeah. everybody to kind of know what yeah. you're saying. But what is awareness? As, as you've said, it's, uh, it's not a sound. It's not a thought. Uh, what is awareness that we all
2: have? That's a great question. So it's the same if we were to answer what is consciousness but we <clears throat> excuse me we can recognize that our relationship to it our understanding is flexible. It can change. And that there's um a journey through which we discover more and more deeply what consciousness is, what awareness is. But we start generally we use our awareness to do things. Like having a flashlight if, if you're listening to this uh, podcast or you're watching, you can see that um, awareness is active in the experience of hearing my voice and uh, looking and seeing the things that you see, the screen, whatever you're looking at. It's actively involved. What we don't do is turn our attention sort of away from the things that we perceive back on awareness itself. So the the first the way that we answer that question, I can talk about it more, but the, the real answer that you will get or any listener would get is when they turn their attention, we could say, away from the information they perceive, the stuff of their life, back to the experience of being aware. So um, uh, I have a bunch of meditations that I offer people for free, and I can link them, but the, the essential point is you would say to yourself, I am aware of whatever it is that I'm experiencing. I can't experience that. I can't have an experience without awareness. There must be awareness present. And I just turn my focus to the experience of being aware. And the beginning of our relationship with awareness is qualities. We perceive either a blankness, emptiness, space, silence, slowness, a shift in focus. So we are reorienting, we're kind of recalibrating our system to perceive awareness. And if it's interesting to you or if it's natural, you will follow through until awareness becomes something that you're kind of resting in that's more clear just as we can focus a a camera lens from the foreground to the background, we can learn to hold awareness in our focus. And it starts off being kind of uh, murky or feeling maybe unclear. But the more that we practice this focus, the more that we uh, stretch ourselves towards back towards the experience of being aware, the more obvious it becomes. And, eventually uh, how awareness is for me now is it's the space where all life happens you could think of it like a dream space so in a dream there's there's the content of the dream there's the 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 visions that you have and the characters and the interactions <clears throat> and all of that is occurring in a in a place there's a medium through which the dream occurs we don't notice that when we're dreaming because we're Again, we're wrapped up in the objects of the dream. We're frightened or allured by whatever objects or interactions are happening. But imagine for a second you stopped in the middle of your dream and really considered, where is all where is all of this taking place? You would be brought to a kind of an empty space of potential. And similarly, for me, the whole world, all worlds, all experiences that ever happen exist in this empty space of attention of potential called awareness um and again my relationship has been progressive and it is it, it has moved through many sort of stages of how it appears but awareness to me is uh like the like the genesis of our reality the, the great thought in which all things are held the one kind of space where all life is being experienced
1: oh wonderfully said for some reason it reminds me of this quote by saint francis of assisi what you are looking for is what is looking and blaze is this so basically the goal if you would not the goal the process or uh, to show the audience a different way of seeing this is this when you realize that You are not your thoughts, you are not your emotions, you're simply, and you get yourself in a state where you're just contemplating thoughts, emotions, and the world just going by, and there's something more authentic experiencing these things,
2: these phenomena. So so the the question was, is that the, the goal? Well, if it's your goal, then yes, that can be a part of it. I think that people want two things primarily in their life. And I would call them uh, whatever it is that you want is what you want. There's no, you don't have to want something different. People either want to have a better life or they want to uh, wake up to the transcendent. They want to kind of relax back into deeper and deeper parts of themselves. And we could call one a kind of a, a horizontal, Direction, like I want to create in this world, or I want to have a healthy and loving relationship, or I want to be able to love and be present for my children. The other is more like I I want to get off the wheel of samsara and I just have this burning desire to kind of come to completion. And so the first step is to be able to create space between your thoughts, feelings, sensations, and the experience of being aware. This is called witnessing. And what this means is that I sort of watch life moving from a stationary position. Awareness is not moving. It's not changing. It's not reactive. It can't gain or lose. And so I have some contrast between my a deeper part of myself, this witnessing quality or awareness, and um, my body, my thoughts, my feelings. And this provides two wonderful things one is um, it provides the possibility for transformation and we can talk more about that and it provides the ability to sort of find to continually progress back into deeper and deeper or more true or more essential parts of oneself so yes having space is really important but some people really like to apply that space In fact, we all have to. But healing essentially is the application of space to my body. So once we have this space, I can discover parts of myself in my body that are suboptimal, and I can hold them with more space. I can relate to them from a sort of non-reactive space, which means I can transform patterns or habits or trauma. And this is a primary focus for a lot of people. This is... Um, people who want to, who maybe they're not sort of wanting to go home. They want to, they have a mission here. So this ability to sort of sit back and to relate to our bodies and our, our conditioning and our trauma with more space allows us more, um, we're not just beholden to whatever we've been sort of programmed to do, but we actually have this ability to contemplate, process, um renegotiate the way that we live our lives and so again for many that is the that is the goal
1: yeah for the audience uh i uh took some of blaze's meditations on his website uh, for free and uh great stuff i would definitely try it out again you don't have to be the zen master on the mountain to do this you just do it and as he's talking there's no uh one size fits all. It depends on each one of us. I'm much better now these days, Blaze. But yeah, when I talked about the goal, I was thinking early in the recovery, all I wanted was for my thoughts and my emotions and my memories not to torture me. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's always the how do you how do you deal with those? I mean, is this part of trauma? Yeah. I just learned that this is my psyche, my soul is not trying to punish in me. It simply yeah. wants to be more aware and show me that all these things are teachable there's lessons and uh they can make me a better person so these things no longer really uh torment me like they used to
2: right and again most you know I work with people who have interests in both fields but it's in both we want relief we want relief from our pain. we want to be functional we want to nobody wants to be in uh, painful arguments that are repetitive or cyclical or have the same stresses in their job or whatever it is. So th- the first thing we notice is that when we don't have space from pain and suffering, we all want it to go away. <laughs> That's <our immediate laughs> reaction. Yeah. How do I get out of this? And without consciousness, we have two strategies. One is we can we can either go away from ourselves, like we can our awareness can leave our body. We can, which is primarily how we deal with trauma. We can go away from ourselves, or we can continually, um, I guess actually all of them is going away from ourselves. But we can either um, the other thing we can do is we can fixate on our problems. We can get into a kind of a neurotic um, battle with ourselves. So we can either try to get rid of our stuff or we can avoid our stuff. That's what happens when we are really attached to our thoughts and feelings and sensations. So again, by being able to step back, what we notice is that awareness, the experience of being, which is another word for awareness, isn't having that problem. That's sort of the primary step. It's to be able to live in two worlds. One is where in my body or my mind, there is pain. And tension or scarcity, or whatever the issue is, too many thoughts. And in awareness, none of that is happening. Whatever is happening in the body, it's not happening in awareness. And now I have increased tolerance to actually be with myself without trying to run away or to change, get rid of myself. And that's the beginning of a productive relationship because now just as you're talking about lying your cards on the table now I can actually face the cards on my table without being overwhelmed right we wouldn't we wouldn't all be clutching onto these cards if they weren't inherently overwhelming if they weren't difficult mm-hmm. right we hold on to things that are difficult that we don't really have a solution for so when we create more space when we have more awareness when we're resting more in the qualities of awareness, we can uh, we can begin to see what is actually happening. When I'm not so busy in trying to get away or manage my issue, I can start to actually understand my issue. And that's the beginning of when you're talking about lessons or it's not a punishment. It's beginning, oh, this is this is what this is. I didn't sort of really see it before because I was just trying to get rid of it, right? I was just not really open to learning. So more tolerance, more sort of pain or discomfort tolerance allows us to actually move towards these things with our curiosity and begin to understand where does this come from? Why is this happening? Where do I feel this? And to be able to be specific about what we're experiencing. And we can discover Uh, many things about why and where but all of them have an origin they all began at a certain point in time and have continued and they all have their story their narrative arc and the ability to be aware to witness allows the narrative arc to complete for the story to finish just like a book that I finally finish and I can put on the bookshelf and say, I read it and I get it rather than a book that's just sitting on my counter looming and staring at me saying, when are you going to finish me?
1: Yeah. And I should mention too, it's nothing wrong with uh, avoiding pain. I think the, one of the basic core elements of any living entity is avoidance of pain. So Absolutely. we do want to avoid pain, but... We also need to face it. And what do you think? We all have personal trauma. None of us had the perfect childhood or relationship. We've all had to overcome death, loss of jobs, Mm -hmm. health issues. That's just part of being a human being. And uh, what do you do? You see anything as a collective trauma? Because in this day and age, with all that's going around in the world, it seems we all are one people going through several similar pains if you know what i mean.
2: Right. So it's a it's a beautiful question. I'm I'm so happy you asked. So if your goal is to sort of wake up in a in a in a buddha like sense, it actually doesn't so much these questions aren't of such importance because you're going to get out of here. <laughs> We're going to beat the game and it's not so important where the origin of of our stuff come from. It's just this plain kind of blanket non-attachment. I go sit in a cave and i and I rest it out. The vast majority of the human population, that's not their relationship to the human story and human suffering. Um, the question that you're asking is like, where is where's the origin of this pain? And unfortunately, we can't discover it without entering it again. Hmm. We can't really know until we actually can turn and face. we can we get some hints, we get some suggestions. My experience is that it there's, there's levels to it. So when I began, my pain was mine. It was in my body. It was really about me. It was personal. And I wanted to heal because I didn't want to be in pain. I wanted to heal for me. And the more that that happened, well, you know, obviously there's just, there's, deeper and deeper levels of experience and we can start to start to understand after doing that that, that it goes beyond our own personal life and what i what i mean by that is so i am trained as a somatic therapist which essentially says that these stories are completed by entering the body and feeling completing emotional or memories that are stored in the body mm-hmm. And in somatic therapy, we would say we look to complete things on three levels: one is what happened a car crash death of somebody abuse, whatever the other is how it was held, meaning what was what was either with the perpetrator or the the people around how was I treated was i seen was i did people acknowledge what happened to me or was it dismissed? And the other is my what's called your attachment system, my underlying template of like what is relationship. So, as I have progressed in my journey, I have come to perceive that trauma is not actually originally of the individual. I'm coming to formulate a belief, I guess you could say, a theory that there was. There has been, in maybe we could call it antiquity, a single integrated human consciousness, and that something happened, and that we represent fragments of that. And our trauma is, yes, between f- father and son or co-workers or whoever, but this uh, has been carried on for some time and is actually fragments of a collective consciousness kind of banging into each other. And the the glue that actually holds this collective consciousness together is this need for connection that children have. So every child needs connection. That's That's not a choice or a disputable thing. Their development and survival is dependent upon that sort of an adult that can see and hold their experience. I have two young children, and they are basically like geysers of energy with no prefrontal cortex. <laughs> and they just, every day, the, the emotional body actually grows the release. Every day. And that release is impulsive. It's lacking foresight. It's lacking context. It needs to be supported. There's no way for that continual release or growth to exist outside of relationship. When it exists outside of relationship, like in neglect, for example, we see children with the most trauma, fun, funny enough. The most trauma that you can experience is actually neglect of relationship, even more than abuse. So there is this, there's this need, deep need in a human being to be connected. And I feel in myself that this need actually is the narrative arc pulling us back to our original unity, that the human story has an arc it from unity to fragmentation and back to unity. And we are entering an interesting phase in the story where the tension between our potential and our, our dysfunction is its highest
1: oh yes you ain't whistling dixie as they say in the yeah. south and uh i don't know if i get in trouble i don't even know if that's a politically incorrect i don't know it's just <laughs> it's a term i know it's you know like you can't say you're off the reservation anymore but no. at a certain age you just have all these sayings in your head <laughs> and you course. say you don't know if they're but um no you're very accurate i remember reading somewhere that if uh if a civilization loses more than 25% of its population, it goes into psychic pain for generations. So we, we carry the trauma of our ancestors, the collective trauma. And, uh, and as you say, well, too, uh, I forgot who said it. Uh, I think it was Megan Watterson in her book about Mary Magdalene. She keeps repeating the body. Don't lie throughout her book. And it, it hit me. She's right. I mean, there are things there were things I used to think that I needed pills or therapy for back aches or headaches or even colds but these days with awareness I'm like no I, I realize it's stress there's a thought that I'm not addressing and it's manifesting and when I take care of this holistically Eighty percent of the eighty percent of the time, it goes away. These aches and pains and colds right. and other stuff, and not being able to sleep. It's uh, it's amazing how our body is such an ally in that sense.
2: Absolutely, and just and I'll pick up on that. But on the other end of the spectrum is like hyper materialism, which we're also being offered right now. Yeah, we could get implants. We could get we could get we can allow our consciousness to be uploaded into computers and we're we're offered this extreme version of materialism and so there's a tremendous it looks like to me a kind of a divergence a, a choice or a change point where people are doing exactly what you say coming to a deeper and deeper understanding of actually there is an intelligence in my body that I actually want to use more i don't want to override it with computers or medication or technology I actually want to enhance it by listening to it. I want to. I want to engage it, and this is the possibility that consciousness offers, because the body is is consciousness. So the more that one uh, wakes up to the experience of consciousness, the less and less it feels like the material world is. The origin of experience. It becomes clear that the material experience is a kind of manifestation or a projection of consciousness. So if my body hurts, I start to be wondering, wondering what lies between the source of my experience and my body that is distorting the expression, essentially. Right? If you take a lamp and you put your hand over it, you create a shadow. That shadow is reflected on the wall. Similarly in consciousness, our world, we don't know it to be a manifestation. We don't feel that. Um, and so we, we look for the source currently. We're looking for the source or the action to occur in material, like I can do something. You know, I have, to, I have to do something to create change in the material world. In consciousness, it's I, ha- I actually remove obstacles or I dissolve or I release. I let go of obstacles, and then my life changes. It's a different orientation. Um, the thing with trauma is, if we consider trauma being a collective phenomenon, is that we can't see or feel it. That's the protective mechanism. The job of trauma is actually to separate us from the origin, that's how it keeps us safe. And what we're left with are symptoms. And so as individuals, we experience this in ourselves as, um, you know, uh, difficulty trusting people or uh, um, difficulty expressing, for example. Collectively, we see this as um, a continual breaking down uh, along gender and racial lines, a continual Desire for conquest and control, um, desire to put chemicals or in the earth or whatever it is, and yet we don't know the origin of these behaviors. We have this kind of general assumption: human beings are kind of sloppy or ignorant beings that have just kind of rising from the primordial ooze, and we just haven't gotten it together yet. And I think this is a really diminished view <laughs> of humanity. It's a it's a kind of a it's it's like a shame based version of humanity, and it's not my uh, experience anymore. When I was before I went to recovery, why was there something wrong with me? Why was I doing all these? Well, because there's something deeply profoundly wrong with me. That's why I had there's I must there must be something wrong with me, and the the promise of healing is to discover there's yes you're dysfunctional, but there's a there's a reason and intelligence behind that that you can learn to appreciate and love and correct. And so humanity's future is not to continually covering over our dysfunction with new strategies and technologies, but to really to go back to the origin of our dysfunction. That's my opinion or what I'm advocating for. And um, I don't think human beings have a really good sense yet of their origin story um, because we can't feel it. But I think, it's, I think it's going to come to us. And we can take our clues, for, as I'm sure you have, through sacred texts or um, the sort of parables or breadcrumbs that we find all around in our world, which is what, what I love most about the world of conspiracy is this great hunt, for this <laughs> great search, that we're on this great detective game that we all play as to where, why is it like, where did it all come from?
1: Yeah. Who's running the show? Who's Don't pulling me. the strings? <laughs> is, uh, is it the Russians? Is it uh, <laughs> lizard people? Is it uh, name your bad guy? How do you see uh, conspiracy theories? I mean, we're talking about the trauma of today, uh, our collective trauma with the lockdowns, the pandemic, whatever you want to call the situation we're living in today. Uh, but yeah, conspiracy is also a, it's become a big part of the collective. How do you see it?
2: Well, I have to first say that uh, you could call drug addiction a conspiracy.
1: Really? So I existed
2: I existed in a bunch of parts, I existed in a bunch of parts, which didn't get a lot of say because they were fragmented, and I, I was actually holding them out of my awareness parts of myself, which I didn't indulge or engage. And I created a central control system which had a strategy to manage and control everything. With cocaine. That was my strategy. Mm -hmm. I didn't ask, it was not a democratic process. I didn't ask all the fragmented parts of myself to be integrated into this system. I dominated my body and my mind through a singular practice. That's how I held it together. That's how I managed my fragmented state. So I transposed that onto the world and I see a world that is fragmented. It's not hard for me to accept and understand how we could create amongst ourselves a controlling group or f- mentality, you know, it doesn't even have to be like a group, but just a kind of a mentality to bind us all together through more and more kinds of deeper and deeper kinds of control. That's not hard. I've lived, I've lived that. <laughs> and I also know where that goes. Personally, that goes to destruction. That's, that's a path of destruction.
1: Yeah, I love the comparison. Beyond just again, if you like cocaine like I did, uh, the paranoia was enough as
2: it is. <laughs> we got a lot of we got a lot of pop paranoia in the modern control. Yeah, we
1: world. do. Yeah, that's the world we're in today. What I usually tell people is uh don't focus on the conspiracy, focus on why you got interested with a the conspiracy. The, whether you get attached to Atlantis or the lizard people or 9/11, There's a reason it spoke to you, and the reasons behind it are more important than solving it. I mean, let's be honest. Let's look at something like the Kennedy assassination. It's pretty obvious it probably wasn't a lone gunman. It's very reasonable that it might have been the CIA. But it doesn't matter because every year from now, probably another hundred years There's going to be a conference in Vegas and people, hundreds of people be showing evidence about the Kennedy. It's not going to be solved and it's always going to be a conversation and it can be a fun conversation. This can be anything, uh, weapons of mass destruction, the moon landing. So I always tell people, why does it interest you? There's something about this that you need to look inward to find out why this is interesting to you and go with that and close those loops within you.
2: I think that's a great, shift, and I think that's really more what it's about, <clears throat> is is a, a journey into ourselves and our relationship with life and our connection to being human. And so I think we're emerging into a, a hard lesson collectively, whether you're into conspiracy or w- whether you're on the other side of the spectrum, there is a desire to create change. I can change the world if I just um if i just use some kind of force to get people to change if i can just use either information i get people to agree with me i can protest hard enough i can stop i can boycott a product i can i can i need to do something to create change that's how we've all been living it's it's been effective on a certain level of experience for a long time but Again, in higher levels of consciousness, it doesn't work like that. That same mentality of taking action, not that you shouldn't take action. Let me try and refine this over the period of the next minute or so. The, the mentality of using force actually keeps the world in a contracted state. So, again, if you're in, when I was an addict, which is a great metaphor, I tried all kinds of things that I could do, I could add on to my experience to make it maybe if I had the right relationship or maybe if I just ate more, you know, I ate healthier or something like, but n- nothing was actually touching the underlying issue. So whatever information we collect about the world, whether it's that uh, whatever political or social information we collect, it's not actually transforming the fundamental issues which, which keep manifesting the stuff. So we need to find a way to drop down into a real deep level of change. And watching YouTube videos is really wonderful and a great start, but it, it's not, that's not really going to do it. No,
1: no, no. no. But uh, yeah, well said. Well, to end Blaze, uh, what advice do you, do you have any advice for these hard times for a lot of people, again, are under a lot of uncertainty, the fear, anxiety, uh, any advice for people and then um, please let us know where we can find out more about your work I'll yeah. have it on the show notes but uh, for those who are listening let us know where to find more about your 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 courses and uh, education
2: yeah so I would say everything that you described uncertainty pain um, uh, the challenge of with the the 2020 and beyond, all of this exists in a context. Our experience is not in sort of, it's not absolute. So the way that I experience uncertainty, the way that I experience my problems dictates how I will relate to this. And superficially, you could try to be grateful for what you have. And then, you know, you could use some other, information to balance it out. But I'm really advocating that we learn actually to relate to the experience of having anxiety, the experience of uh, being uncertain from a deeper level of ourselves, the experience of being aware. In doing so, again, we create space from the issue itself. And this space changes the context of the challenge. So again, we're also We want to Do something about it. But if we kind of step back and relax and get space, we change the context of our experience. And in a really simple way, I would say that there becomes a lot more avenues of movement. We're not stuck. When we are able to actually relax into a bigger experience of ourselves, we're not bound to the challenges. That's the promise of awareness. Awareness actually holds all of life experiences. Rather than being stuck inside the world, the world is inside awareness. And this can be experienced as a kind of movement from bondage, like I'm stuck in the matrix, to actually the matrix is a kind of a creation that exists inside me. So... Neo, in the, in the fabled movie, gains control when he starts to realize the nature of the struggle. He starts to really understand there's a kind of a context to his battle with those people. <clears throat> and in our own lives, it's actually this shift in context which creates power and the ability to do something new, to be creative rather than reactive. So yeah, again, we've had thousands of years of human beings toiling and working, and it has gotten to us here. And I believe the next level is radically different kind of productivity, which involves um, a shift in how we see what changes. That, again, in those books that Krishnamurti used to write, he would say, the seeing is the doing. And I thought, well, that's a really tidy saying, but I didn't really deeply know what that meant. And what it means is in a world that is made of consciousness, which is what higher, higher truths and higher dimensions are, the experience of witnessing and holding, relating to life is what creates a change. Just like when you're in a dream, if you know that you're dreaming, suddenly you're not bound in a in a nightmare anymore the dream starts to take on a creative quality but when you don't know you're dreaming it's it's this overwhelming thing which is sort of all around you but you you become aware that you're dreaming it's inverted this dream is inside me so every person has the ability to wake up to the fact that life is actually inside their awareness as a, it's just an individual singular Phenomenon. The world occurs inside my awareness. In doing so, we change our relationship to the problems, and we begin to actually, rather than fight them, care for them. So, how do you do that? Well, you could just hear what I say and go great, and go off and do it. Some people can do that. Some people really actually can do that, and they would need to know more about what I do. The second level would be that you could. Um, go to my website and get access to some of those free meditations and practice on your own. And again, you might just get it. It might just make sense to you. I'll level up as I'm actually running a new group course, which essentially takes the whole series of meditations and I help hold groups of people there. And in a group, the primary focus is on consciousness, it's not really on relating or healing so much. It's sort of a personal teaching you how to do, how to sort of relax, to hold life. And then the fourth way is that I see people also one-on-one and the focus is more on trauma and healing patterns that people have. So when people have experienced significant um, trauma or even average people who are feeling significant activation of their trauma relationship is the it's actually a more powerful way to resolve it because again our wounding our trauma actually happens relationally we don't really have unless we accidentally fell off a cliff by ourselves one day even that there's like where how i was received when people anyway right. but all our wounding comes in the context of being a human amongst other humans in this world and our human needs, which are to be met by others. So I also see people one-on-one to do more relational work.
1: And what is the your website for those that wouldn't want to listen?
2: Uh, blazekennedy.com. If you go to BlaiseKennedy.com slash meditations, um, there's a sort of a sign-up. I put you on my mailing list, and then you can download all the meditations for free. And uh, in my mailing list, I send out things about courses or new material that I create. Uh, and if you do the free meditations, please send me an email. I, I get a lot more people doing them than people giving me feedback on them. And I, as a sort of a scientist, uh, I uh-huh. love the feedback. Um, you can also follow me at Instagram at uh, thislife.blaze. Those are my two, two things, my website and my Instagram page.
1: Awesome. Well, we are at the end, Blaze. Uh thank you very much for coming on, finding Hermes and providing a lot of cards on the table for people to take and uh use for their lives and uh highly suggest uh audience try some of his meditations they are very cool,
2: right? And just To finish off where we started, imagine that before you think about putting your cards down, before you try to play your cards or get rid of them or get more cards, you actually kind of sat back and looked around, where am I? Where do these cards exist? Where? What is the space that I'm in? And you take in more information. And that this broader context allows you to play the game better to have a better understanding of what you're actually doing when you're taking risks or being a human being. That's what the process meditations are really about. They're about providing a, a broader context for this game called life so that you can be better at it.
1: Well said. Well, thank you, Blaze, for coming on the show again. Really appreciate it.
2: Thanks for your time and for being such a good interviewer.
1: And there you have it. A great interview with Blaise Kennedy And I certainly suggest, as I said in the interview, check out some of his meditation freebies on his site. I enjoyed them, and you might enjoy the rest of his courses. The world can't have enough meditation and reflection and introspection, that's for sure. Uh, For some reason, I'm thinking of uh, Mr. Robot. I finally caught up on the last season. Very good... uh, very powerful engaging content very gnostic in many of its themes but um, there is a quote by the protagonist elliot and in one scene he says the best thing about your life is also the worst thing about your life i think you could say that too about meditation Uh, the best thing about meditation can be the worst thing and that is you are exposed to your inner world You are exposed to the desires and forces of the upper worlds. And that will crucify you as it will crown you. But such is life. Such is the the way of the true seeker warrior. So the best thing in your life is also the worst thing in your life. Meditate on that too. Another thing I thought about is what they say in AA that prayer is talking to god meditating is listening to god and in a way you could also flip this too if you engage in very intense prayer then you're going to start listening to the divine and on the other hand if you meditate very well uh you're gonna have you're gonna start having a conversation with the divine too so in anything in your life if you do it intensely enough if you do it uh, with full engagement and participation the avenues of communication are gonna open up so a little food for your meditation or prayer um, also, our conversation reminded me of what Nicole Bradford said, a guest on AB Live, uh, a little while back. She said that uh, meditation is simply focusing your mind on what it needs to focus on. Focusing on, well, not even the now, but what it needs to understand. After all, as Jung said, we need a strong ego. The ego is the part of us that has to deal with reality. And also has to uh, be focused on the energies that are coming up from our unconscious. And a uh, an ego that is always focused on what it needs to be focused is a good and strong ego. And meditation is something that can help you be focused, attentive, and again, dealing with the reality that is around you at the moment or the reality that you need to be fully engaged with uh, as you go on in your journey of individuation. So again, more food for your meditation, more food for your prayer. Um, I should mention, too, that the Gnostics, of course, dealt with meditation. There's plenty in their texts and uh, writings from the Church Fathers on how the Gnostics delved into uh, contemplation, silence, and, yes, of course, meditation. It was very important to them. Uh It's mostly couched in a way that uh, there is a... here a font of mysteries or a Gnostic revealer like Jesus or Hermes uh, other figures too. And uh the this person or this individual is leading you through these practices, uh showing you the truth about the universe and the truth about what you are. And then suddenly they'll stop and say, we must do a prayer. Or they'll stop and say, now it is time to be silent. Now it is time to contemplate on this gnosis that you are receiving. And I'm sure this meant that the 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 individual, the student had to stop and let this gnosis soak into you and through you as you saw the truth about the universe and as your consciousness expanded. In the Gospel of Thomas, you have saying number 50, and it explains really the Gnostic idea of meditation. It goes, Jesus said to them, if they say to you, where did you come from? Say to them, we came from the light, the place where the light came into being on its own accord and established itself and became manifest through their image. If they say to you, is it you? Say, we are its children. We are the elect of the living Father. If they ask you, what is the sign of your Father in you? Say to them, it is a movement and a meditation so more food for your prayer and your meditation yes it is a movement and a meditation and that's how the gnostics and the hermetics dealt with the idea of meditation it's a contemplation it's a reflection it is a pause To see what is going on and catch attention of the fast moving and very busy universe outside of you and all the, and well, and the, and the vast universe that is within you too, that is always moving, always communicating and always waiting, always waiting to talk to you and for you to listen and to you and for it to listen to you, to listen to your ego and what it needs to deal with reality around. So that's all I got on meditation. A very important subject and a very, yeah, talked about, researched, and often frustrated spiritual pursuit. I hope this helps you. I hope Well, as always, I hope this show has uh, again offered you a little more information, a few more tools so you can walk through those doors so that you can lay your cards on the table and so that you may become transparent to the transcendent here in this age of Hermes, here in the desert of the real, as I say on Aeon Byte. Thank you.